because it said word of God, and then you're like, uh, this is the word of God, praise be to God, again. So, but you did a good job reading. Yeah. So, <clears throat> it's a good passage, and you did a great job reading it. I'd like, um, I'm wondering, how many of you have ever heard, I'll just hold it up, how many have ever heard of this book before? You probably can't see it very well. So you come down there. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. Okay, good. How many of you have read this book before out of a show of hands? Okay, handful. Or maybe you've had this book read to you as a child. Um, I'd like to actually read a, a portion of it. Um, the author's a guy named John Bunyan, lived a long time ago. It's interesting, Spurgeon, I, qu- I quoted Charles Haddon Spurgeon, right? And he talked about John Bunyan. And he said that John Bunyan was so entrenched in the Bible that if you cut him, do you remember this? He bleeds bibbling, <laughs> right? So prick him anywhere, and the man bleeds bibbling, right? And that's who he's talking about, John Bunyan. And when you read the Pilgrim's Progress, you can actually see that. It's fascinating because he, it, there's, it's just, even, I'm going to read this portion now to you, and even that, you can just, you can hear so many echoes of Scripture. It's, it's, it's really encouraging. Now, Given that we're talking about spiritual warfare, specifically, what I want to concentrate on is the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. There is a... Um, now, now, this book, for those of you who have read let me give you a, a quick background to it. So in, in this book, there's the, the main character. His name is Christian, right? And Christian lives in what's called the City of Destruction. And he feels this... He's got this big pack of burden, which is his sin, and he feels weighed down by it, and he's distressed, and so he leaves the city of destruction, and he heads on this journey. And on his journey, he encounters uh, a lot of hardships, a lot of trials. Uh, He almost, uh, I won't give away the book, but he almost loses it in the swamp of despond. He gets scared when he sees uh, lions. There's, there's There's all kinds of twists and turns in his journey to what's finally the the city of Zion, the celestial city. What what Bunyan's trying to do is he's saying our life is this journey where we're we're heading towards heaven and there's there's twists and turns and we're trusting in God. And does that make sense? And so this this is a a story or it's an allegory, as it were, of um, sort of our lives, as it were, depiction of our lives. Now, let me read because as Christian is making his way towards the celestial city, towards the city of Zion, towards heaven. He comes across, and it's really intense fight, and he comes across Apollyon, right? And Apollyon's supposed to be a depiction of the devil, actually. Um, Now, listen to this. Once, he was in the Valley of Humiliation. Poor Christian was immediately put to the test. He had not gone very far before he spied a foul fiend coming over the field to meet him. His name was Apollyon. Christian was afraid and struggled in his mind to know what he should do. Should he go back or stand his ground? As Christian thought about what to do, he realized that he had no armor for his back and that turning and running would give the enemy an easy target for his darts. Christian decided that standing his ground would give him the best chance of surviving Apollyon's attack. So Christian went forward. And Apollyon met him. Now the monster was hideous to behold. He was clothed with scales like a fish. They are his pride. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, a belly from which came fire and smoke, and the mouth of a lion. 
When he advanced near Christian, he viewed him with a disdainful look and then began to question him. Apollyon asked him, Where did you come from? Where are you bound? I came from the city of destruction, which is the place of all evil. And I am going to the city of Zion, Christian answered. By your answer, I perceive that you are one of my subjects, for all that country is mine, and I am the prince and god of it. How is it that you have run away from your king? Were it not for the fact that I wish you to enter into my service again, I would strike you to the ground with one blow. And then there's this talk back and forth where Apollyon says, look, you, you, you need to come back. All's forgiven. Just come on back to the city of destruction. I should wipe you out, but let's just, let's call that a quits. And then Christian says, no, I can't do that. My loyalty is actually to a new prince, a new king in the new kingdom. And that's where I'm headed, Apollyon. And then it's interesting because Apollyon says, yeah, but you've blown it. How do you know this prince is going to take you in? You failed on your journey. So that's where he says, you have already been unfaithful in your service to him. So why do you think you receive wages from him? Apollyon challenged. How, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollyon accused. You almost fainted when you set out. When you almost choked in the swamp of despond, you also attempted to get rid of your burden in the wrong way instead of patiently waiting for the prince to take it off. You sinfully slept and lost your scroll. You were almost persuaded to go back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk of your journey and of what you have heard and seen, you inwardly desire your own glory in all you do and say. A Christian responds, all this is true, and much more that you have failed to mention, Christian agreed. But the prince, whom I now serve and honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these infirmities possessed me while I was in your country, for there I allowed them to come in. But I have groaned under them, have been sorry for them, and have obtained pardon from my prince." Then Apollyon broke into a hideous rage, shrieking, I am an enemy of this prince. I hate his person, his laws, and his people. I have purposely come here to stop you. Apollyon, beware of what you do, for I am in the king's highway, the way of holiness. Therefore, take heed to yourself. Then Apollyon straddled himself over the whole breadth of the way and countered, I am void of fear in this manner. Prepare to breathe your last, for I swear by my eternal den that you will go no further. Here I will spill your soul. And with that, he threw a flaming dart at Christian's breast. But Christian had a shield in his hand by which he averted it and its danger. Then Christian drew his sword, for he saw that it was time to make a stand against Apollyon. Apollyon quickly advanced on Christian throwing darts as thick as hail. Christian did all he could to avoid being struck, yet he could not prevent Apollyon from wounding him in his head, his hand, and his foot. These wounds caused Christian <clears throat> to falter a little, and Apollyon advanced even more. Finally, Christian found new courage and resisted as manfully as he could. This mortal combat lasted for about half a day, 
until Christian grew weaker and weaker because of his many wounds. Then Apollyon, spying his opportunity, began to move closer to Christian, wrestling with him until Christian fell to the ground. With that, Christian's sword flew out of his hand. Then said Apollyon, I have you now, and almost crushed Christian to death, so that Christian began to despair of life. But as God would have it, while Apollyon lifted himself up to deliver his last blow and to make a full end of this good man, Christian nibbly stretched out his hand for his sword and grabbed it, saying, Rejoice not against me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise back up. With that, Christian gave Apollyon a deadly thrust, which made the fiend fall back as one who had received a mortal wound. Christian, seeing his advantage, thrust his sword him and him again, saying, Nay, in all these we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. When he heard these words, Apollyon spread out his dragon wings and flew away, and Christian saw him no more. During this entire battle, I saw and heard in my dream the yelling and hideous roaring from Apollyon can scarcely be imagined, resembling the voice of a dragon, nor can the intensity of the sighs and groans that issued from Christian be fully described. Christian fought with such vigor that his countenance never once relaxed its grin, grim expression until he perceived that he had wounded Apollyon with his two-edged sword. Only then did Christian smile and look upward, but until that point, it was the most dreadful and fierce fight I had ever witnessed. <laughs> you guys are great. Yeah. I'll leave it up here if you want to come take a look at it, but but it's, it's a good fight, isn't it? It's an epic battle. Undoubtedly, the character Christian would have been destroyed, would have been wiped out, had it not been for the sword. And I read that to you because the author, John Bunyan, knew what it meant for us to engage in spiritual warfare and how vital it is that we have the sword of the Spirit. So what I want us to consider this morning is that we are in fact in a spiritual battle. And if we ever want to be victorious, just how crucial it is, friends, that we be in God's word and have our swords ready. So what we're going to look at today is this passage in Ephesians. So some of you have your Bibles. You can open them up to Ephesians. And with our Bibles opened, let's look to the Lord in prayer and then unpack this text. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, a sense of urgency as it's read and taught, that your spirit would yet again illumine your word as it's preached and speak to our hearts, conform us to the image of Jesus, we ask. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, we looked at Ephesians chapter 5. Some of you were here, some of you weren't, but, but last week, we looked at Ephesians 5. And the book of Ephesians, is, it's, it's one of my favorite books. You, you can basically, we broke it out into two chunks. The first half is about right belief, chapters 1, 2, and 3. The latter half is about right practice, chapter 4, 5, and 6. Right belief, tracking with me? Right belief, right 
practice. Also, last week, we concentrated on the practice bit in Ephesians 5, where Paul tells us to walk in wisdom. And if you keep reading in Ephesians, Paul starts talking about household relationships in the text. Right? He addresses wives and their submission to their husbands. He addresses husbands as the leaders of their households, and they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Following that, he moves on to children and parents. And finally, wrapping up the focus of household relationships, he speaks to slaves and masters. And notice the first word, though, in verse 10. Notice the first word. That is the indication of his transition. You see that? Finally, finally. Finally what? Well, finally, be strong in the Lord. This sets the tone for what follows because now he uses battle imagery to describe the spiritual warfare each Christian is in. You can just picture Paul, right? Remember, he went to this city, Ephesus, and do you remember when he went there on his second missionary journey? People started a riot all because others weren't worshiping a pagan goddess named Diana anymore in Acts 19. It's a very wicked city, but there's a revival that happens in this city, so much so that they have a, people want to turn from witchcraft because witchcraft was very prevalent in the city, and they had a big bonfire, no joke, where there's thousands of, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars being, of witchcraft books being thrown and burnt into this fire as a way to say, we're not going to follow that as our worldview anymore. We're not going to follow that as the truth because we know Jesus now and we're saved. And so there's this turning. But, but think about this. If so, I said, hey, in Wyoming, there was a big revival that happened. And as a result, there was probably about $1.7 million that were thrown into a bonfire. That's how much people, that's how much, uh, people were spending, as it were, on these witchcraft books. Would you go far out? $1.7 million. There was that many books on witchcraft in Wyoming? Good night. That sort of gives you an indication of what this city is like. And so they're not unfamiliar with the occult. They're not unfamiliar with the demonic. So, so that's why Paul is saying, right, finally be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of darkness. Now, it's interesting, and we can't miss this here. You can just picture Paul as he writes now. He's not in Ephesus. He's writing from a Roman prison, and he's chained to a Roman guard. So he has a pretty easy illustration at this point to look at the Roman guards' get up, as it were, and say, I noticed here that it says, and as he writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, as he writes, oh look, breastplate of righteousness, helmet, shield. Roman guard may have not had all those pieces on, but certainly as as guards are being swapped out, you're you're sort of living and breathing a Roman guard next to you and and his sort of attire, his his get-up, as it were. But it's interesting, though, another thing we can't miss is this idea where he says, be strong. Be strong, or you better yet, be made strong. Kind of like the prayer in chapter 3, verse 16, that God might strengthen you with the power of his spirit. In other words, we don't, we don't get all jazzed up. Do you use that expression here? We don't get all 
pumped up like before a footy game, you know, armor of God, armor of God, armor, ooh, 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 right, you know, or, or an, you know, an NRL game or whatever. AFL games, they don't get that pumped up because it's not that violent. <laughs> NR, NRL's for real men. Um, just kidding. AFL's fine. So you, you get, you know, you get, you get what I'm saying, right? You, it's not like we have to get pumped up or come to a big service where we say, come here on Saturday night because we're going to get our armor on. Oh yeah, we're going out to battle. It's interesting too. Do you notice in this text, what is he primarily concerned about? What is he, he says, get your armor out and get out there and fight and go cast out some demons because that's what he's most, more concerned about. No, 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 no. Don't miss it. What is, what is he really on about? Put on the armor so that you can do what? Stand, that's right. And he says it twice, right? So, and doing all, then stand firm. Kind of like Christian does with Apollyon. And it would be foolish for John Bunyan to say, and what Christian did is the very first thing is he went looking for Apollyon. No, Christian's no fool. He knows that Apollyon's out there. But when Apollyon comes and attacks him, he's able to stand his ground. And so he says, therefore, stand, stand. Something else critically important about the armor of God, very critically important, and at the very outset of this idea of spiritual warfare, is that the armor is actually God's own armor, which he won for his people. The breastplate of righteousness. How's your righteousness coming for you today, this week? <laughs> Mine's not good. I need Christ's righteousness. The helmet of what? My own salvation? No way. I'm doomed. Uh, sandals? Oh, I just gave away that I'm wearing them. Thongs? Don't, I hope I didn't offend anybody. <laughs> Shoes fitted with the readiness that comes from what? The gospel, right? The gospel of peace. Um, which is really a big relief which is really a big relief if you think about it. Um, what I mean is, if you look over the whole book of Ephesians, you can see that Paul has already laid out each piece of the armor for us already, what we have in Christ. Because it, it, it's a relief because it's not as if you have to, you know, you leave the house tomorrow and you get on the train or in the car or go to meet your friend for coffee or whatever you're doing tomorrow and you go, oh! <gasps> Oh no, I forgot my breast, breastplate of righteousness. Oh, run back home. Oh no, I forgot the helmet of salvation. What am I going to do? I didn't forget to bring, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This, here's the key. We need to appropriate this armor. Appropriate the armor. Because Paul has already laid out each piece for us. Can I show you what I mean by that? Let me just show you an example. Let's take the first one. Now, I really hope you have a Bible because if you don't, if that's okay if you don't, don't I'm not, that's not a guilt thing. I just, I don't want you to get lost at this point. I just want to show you very quickly the first piece, how it's picked up. I'm tempted to go through every piece, but we're not going to do that. I'm just going to give you one example, the very first one. Okay, so what is the very first piece of armor? You see it in verse 14? What is the first piece? What does it say? The belt of truth. It's not just any belt, right? It's the belt of what? Truth. truth. Okay. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 13. Chapter 1, verse 13. 
I want to show you how this has already been given. The belt of truth. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord and your love toward all the saints, I do not, I do not cease to give thanks for remembering you in all my prayers. Right? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of God, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called. Right? Keeps going. And then he said, when you heard the word of truth later, right? The gospel of your salvation. Now, now, so they were saved by the word of truth. Then they were taught in it. Now, I'll just turn to 421 real quick. We're, we're almost, I don't want to belabor this. So just 421. Assuming, sorry, I keep hearing pages turn, so I'll just wait a second. 421. So again, they heard the word of truth. They were saved. Like us, they were saved by it. And then they were taught in it. 421 now. Right, to put off the old selves which belongs to your former way of life, corrupt through deceitful desires, and be received. Sorry, 421. I was reading 20. I, just, I jumped ahead. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as what? The truth is in Jesus. Now, now look at 5.9. 5, 5.9. 5, For the fruit... Sorry, I'll just wait. Still here. Pages. 5.9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and what? True. Again, I would love to go through and show you how every one of these bits has already, every one of these bits in the armor has already been laid out in the book of Ephesians. This is not an appendix, the armor of God. It's not like Paul comes to the very end of the letter and he says, you know, this is the, this is usually the part where men start to kind of go to sleep in the sermon. I know. I'm going to have a really cool part. This is going to get all the guys' attention. Ready? The armor of God. Oorah! No, no, no. He's just reiterating what he's already said in the previous chapters. Does that make... Are, are you tracking with me? It's already there. The armor of God, this is not some appendix. This is not something new. This is just sort of looking back to everything that he's already talked about in chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And now he's saying, take these things up. Kind of like this. He talks about this in chapter 4. Take off the old self and put on what? The new self. The new self is that armor. So we have the armor. It is there. It is about, means that we appropriate this armor. But I want to focus on the sword of the Spirit but I, I, and the reason I do is because we're talking about the Bible and the importance of getting in it. But, but it's interesting when, when you consider all these pieces, right? You have the, the belt, the breastplate, the shoes, the shield, the helmet. Have you ever noticed that all of the armor up to this point is for protection? You notice that? It is for our defense or preparation. But now he gives our one offensive weapon, and that is verse 17. So if you're, if you're there still, chapter 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay, 
In the New Testament, I want to think about this idea, sword. In the New Testament, there are two types of swords. The first sword is the Greek word romphia, romphia, and that type of sword is a very long, big sword. Sort of looks something like this. Okay, this isn't, this is from Ralph. Thank you, Ralph. Yeah, so I know, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, so you know, well, I'm, yeah. So this would, this, you'd picture this like in, uh, if you've seen the movie Braveheart or, or whatever, this would be, a, this is not a real sword, right? It is? Okay, sorry. The pastor brought a big sword on the stage, right? So it's good. It's not sharp. Be assured. And after this, Ralph's going to take it and put it right back in his car so no kids go, no, mom, grab the sword and start, yeah. So son, Josiah. You see, buddy, hey. Oh, he went back. Oh, Okay. That would be my son to go run and want to grab this thing. So this is what, there's two types of sword in the New Testament. This is Ramphia. And um, again, this is a big, this is a big sword. Now there is, can I just hand it to you with this blade going this way? Now there's another type of sword used in the New Testament. Um, so anyway, I, I, I give all that. That's not the type of sword that actually Paul's talking about here. When he says, the sword of the spirit. It's actually Makaira. Makaira. And this is more of what it would look like. Cool, thank you. It's more of the idea, and have, have you ever, I don't know if you watch uh, war movies, particularly in the Greco-Roman era, that you would see soldiers sort of have these on their side? Do you guys know what I'm talking about now? And so uh, a Roman soldier would have a massive shield, almost like the size of a door, essentially. And then sometimes they'd have big spears going out that way. And then if their shield got pushed back, they could pull this and sort of, it's almost like a small dagger. Use it, I won't point it at you guys, but use it this way to sort of defend. So you're defending yourself. You still are. You're, you're pushing the enemy back, but you're using it as close combat. That is the word makaria. So, and that is what we see here. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate it. And don't worry, parents, that's going right back in his car. No kids are going to be playing with it, Okay. Now, beyond the two types of swords, I figured if anyone is under the age of 20, I just had them for the, for the last couple minutes there in the sermon. So there you go, mission accomplished. All right, now, beyond the two types of swords, notice the nature of the sword, though, if you will, will in the text. It's the sword of the what? Spirit. The spirit is the source or the author of the sword. Not words of God, as if we go hunting and wondering what these words might be, and therefore that prepares us for battle. No, 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 no. The word of God, the scriptures. That's what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit gives us this sword by reminding us of God's word for times of distress, friends, and times of temptation for times of distress and temptation. I mean, the whole battle imagery can give you one of intensity and distress. It, I've noticed that the enemy of our souls often will try to attack the mind. Okay? And that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 4 through 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God 
to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Or if you prefer the NIV, for the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they, they have divine power to demolish arguments and we demolish arguments and every pretension, I think, that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ or something like that. So the King James is a little bit more boss because it's like, for the weapons of all warfare, you just picture, you know, anyway, it's more like what those swords. Now, it's interesting. I often see that the devil will attack the mind, particularly in the area of our assurance of being saved. Because once you're saved, friend, if you've been sealed, you are always saved. The moment we trusted in Christ, we were immediately saved from the penalty of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you ever get bored of that? You shouldn't, because you should be condemned if justice is all there is. Guess what? We're all done. Bugger, as you guys would say, right? (laughs) I'm becoming more Australian as, the day, as each week progresses. Hey, that's right. Oh, no, no, please go and stop. You're going to distract me again. We are, but, but listen, listen. We stand before God. We deserve to be condemned. But there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are what? In Christ Jesus. But I'll tell you that when you are alone with your thoughts, you can begin to doubt this reality. And if the devil can convince Christians that they have lost or could soon lose their salvation, then they'd be susceptible to doubt all God's promises, his goodness, his power, and ultimately his ability to keep them saved to the end. If you're going to stand our ground, friends, if we're going to stand our ground, we must have hope that God has indeed saved us and he will hold us fast. Right? What does Paul say in Philippians? That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Look, God's people are redeemed by Christ, renewed by the Holy Spirit, and kept by the power of God so that nothing can snatch them out of his hand. You know, all throughout, the, all throughout the book, and I encourage you this week, because we haven't started a Bible reading plan yet, I encourage you to read this book of Ephesians because all throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul has been using language to describe what Christ has done and who we are in him. That we have been brought into union with him and seated with him. You realize how massive that is? And so Paul points to that status that we have as God's children to remind us that we should have every reason for confidence because Christ has already won the war. It is finished, Jesus said. We are saved from the sting of death. We can conquer those things. And you know what? Once you're saved, God will hold you to the very end. And as Jesus says, my sheep know my voice, right? And uh, he says in Matthew, I believe it's 
10 and no one or nothing can snatch them out of my hands. Okay? It's critically important. But it's easy when you've fallen into sin to get in your car, you had a big fight with your wife or your partner, you're driving in the car, oh, and you're letting off steam, and you just sense this, oh, you know what? See, I'm not a different person. I'm not probably a Christian. And if I, maybe, if, you know what? I've probably never been a Christian. Or, you know what? Maybe I've lost my salvation somehow. Listen, th- those things are lies. Or if you, there's a particular sin in your life where you just keep falling back into it. I'm not talking about that you're just giving into it. I'm not advocating for antinomianism. You know what I mean by that? Antinomianism, no law. I'm not saying that, hey, just trust in grace alone and just sin it up. It's not, it's not what I'm talking about. But if there's a particular sin in your life that you, you're fighting against, it's easy to be discouraged in those moments and to think, you know what? Hey, maybe I've, I, I've, I've, you know, I've stuffed up too many times. This is just who I am now. This is just who I am. And, and you, you begin to, have you ever experienced that? And you begin to think like, you know what? Fine. This is, you know what? I'm, I'm tired. I'm just going to be this now. Because uh, clearly this is, this is who I am. And there's plenty of books out there, friends, that will tell you, of course it is. Just own it. But that's, if it's contrary to the word of God, friends, it's not who you are. And if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. And listen, the fruit of the Spirit, remember, sword of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Right? For the grace of God has appeared, all men bringing salvation, which teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, it says in Titus. So, sword of the Spirit can help us fight against distress, against feeling identified by a particular sin. Now, it can also help us fight temptation. The Holy Spirit gives us this sword by reminding us of what God's word says during times of temptation. What did Jesus do when he was tempted? Right? The devil comes and says to him, hey, if you are the Son of God, right, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus says, it is what? Written. Man does not live on bread alone. Quoting Deuteronomy, parts of Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then so the devil says, all right, you win. How about this? I'll take you up to the highest pinnacle of the temple. Jesus Throw yourself off. Because doesn't that say somewhere, like in Psalm 91, that he'll command his angels concerning you? And that, you know, you're not going to, you're going to end up, this will be like a, a, a massive bungee jump before bungee jumping was even around. Or a skydive or a miraculous, you know, you don't even need the bungee because the angels are going to lift you up. You're not going to die this way, and everyone knows that. Just throw yourself off. Prove yourself. Think of the following you'll get. And Jesus says, no, no, no. It is what? Written. And then, again, you get, the, you get the principle. Now, listen. If the Lord himself fights temptation by quoting the word, it would behoove us to do the same and to be able to be in the word and know it. The Bible says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. 
You know why Dan and I have been the last few weeks banging on this? saying, we want you to read the Bible, we want, here's the plan, here's the plan. It's not so that you can say, oh, you know what, in six months, I know all of these scriptures, and look, aren't I, aren't I awesome? Aren't I great? No. It's so that you're able to fight temptation. You're able to know God better. It's sort of, I like how Piper talked about that in the video. It's sort of, it's not a lifeless frame hanging, but it's a window, right? Into the real world, the lasting world. I love that. It's so that you can know God more. Best way you know the Lord is through his word. So really, if you want Satan off your back, friend, use your Bible. Read your Bible. Quote your Bible. Study your Bible. If you're relying on experience or your feelings about God during times of distress and temptation, you're really in a dangerous place. And chances are you'll, you'll be let down to believing things that just frankly aren't true about God. God has spoken to us in his word, particularly in the person of his son. And so if you're like, all right, Lord, what, what do you want me to do in this? Read God's word. Read God's word. Read God's word. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrows. Listen, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I don't know about you, but I need my thoughts and attitudes judged. I'm pretty regular. I'm not, you know, because I'm, I have, I'm a pastor all of a sudden that I'm exempt from temptations and distress. <laughs> no way. I, I, I need God's word to correct my thinking. I need my thoughts and attitudes judged because oftentimes they're wrong. All of us need that. You have to commit to studying this on your own though because no one ever skilled in using the sword of the spirit. Remember, the sword of the spirit is there. We have the armor. Okay? The sword of the spirit is there, but no one ever came skilled. I, I could barely, that was pretty pathetic, Ralph. I was like, you know, I could barely unsheath that thing and I was trying to hold it. I, clearly, I don't know how to use a sword, right? I think I do because of maybe some movies I've watched like, oh yeah, you know, but I have no idea, you know, I was fumbling around with it up here. I don't know how to use the sword because I don't, I don't use a sword on a regular basis, okay? But listen, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you won't become agile, you won't become effective using this sword if the only time that you're thinking about the sword is through someone else talking about the sword or through maybe one day a week, someone on Sunday opens it up and explains the sword. You need to be knowing how to use the sword on your own. You need to be able to feed yourself. Think of the mac and cheese illustration from a few weeks ago. You need to be able to feed yourself, regularly be in God's word. You know, Martin Luther actually encountered spiritual warfare quite often in his lifetime. And he wrote many hymns. Um, One that is my, probably one of my favorite hymns that he wrote, and I wish I knew German because it would sound even cooler in German, but I don't. But it's a mighty fortress is our God. I want to read this to you. It's very interesting. What Luther does in this song is he actually paraphrases Psalm 46, 
He takes the ideas from both Psalm 46 and then what we're looking here at the armor of God and, and pictures the battle of the Christian and, and spiritual warfare. In the first verse, he says this, ready? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe, here comes, ready, the attack. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth there is none his equal. Some, some archaic language, but I'm going to keep reading in verse 2. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Verse 3, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred grow, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen. I love that hymn. It's powerful. And imagine if we could sing it in German. Luther reminds us that, there, that the battle is the Lord's. Does he not? You can catch it in that flavor of that hymn. And, and when we can, we can trust him, we can trust in him that the Lord Jesus is fighting for us. I love that, right? He, he says, one little word shall fell him. What, what is that? Well, the word above all earthly powers, no thanks to abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours to him who with us sideth. I love that. And, and, and that's a comforting truth. That's a comforting truth that the Lord fights for his people. The Lord fights for his people. That if you have turned from your sin, remember there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you've turned from your sin, you will not be condemned. If you have not turned from your sin in Jesus and Jesus alone, you stand condemned even now, friend. And the wrath of God hangs over you. But praise be to God, he doesn't leave you there. He gives you an opportunity to turn today. Turn to Jesus now. Turn to him. You cannot win this battle that Luther's talking about. But we who are in Jesus already have because Jesus says it is finished and he gives us that armor, gives us his breastplate of righteousness, gives us the helmet of salvation we're, gonna, we're not going to feel that on Tuesday or Wednesday, by the way. That's just how life goes. You're going to feel tired. You're going to feel annoyed from a conversation you had. We're sinners. That's why we need to get back into God's word and know how to, no, don't think, think of me up here. How I can't hold this sword basically still. And think, oh, I don't want to look like that in a battle. <laughs> I want to know how to use the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. So let's get in it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. And I pray that this week, maybe someone here for the first time who hasn't opened up a Bible in years, Lord, would they do so and be just awakened 
reminded, refreshed, restored, renewed. Lord, for those of us that maybe we read every day, but it's, we're getting into this pattern of just, it seems boring, it seems monotonous. Lord, as, as Piper was talking about in that video, I pray that we wouldn't see it as a dead portrait hanging on the wall, but a window into the real world that it's life restoring to us. I pray that this year, Wyoming Church of Christ would be marked by, that we would be people of your word. Help us to love your word, to cherish it like sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to transition now.